today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of love. Jesus shows us God's love. He is God's perfect love in human form. Those who believe in him and live in him live in love. Love transforms and perfects all things. Love never ends. We light this candle today to remind us that God is love. We thank God for hope, the hope that he gives us, for the peace he bestows, and for the joy he pours into our hearts, and for the love that redeems and shows us the way. Let us pray. O oh God of love, Emmanuel, send your light into our hearts at this time. Help us to be ready for the time of Christ's appearing. Grant that we may so dwell in him that his perfect love fills our entire being. Make our worship a time in which we celebrate your love and make ready to show that love to the whole world, both today and forevermore. Amen. great to see you as we gather for worship today. Uh, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here joining you in worship this morning.
Great to see you as uh, we gather for worship today. And just a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. Um, Wednesday evening at 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, we have Christmas Eve services. And we hope that you can join us if you're in town. Um, and we, uh, these are great times together, great traditions uh, to uh, celebrate uh, the birth of Christ. And uh, we're meeting here at 5 and at 7. The 5 o'clock service will have a children's time. And just a little bit different than the seven, but uh, very similar things of reading the scriptures, singing together, and uh, candle lighting at each of the services. Uh, You'll also note on the the back of your bulletin the service times for the next few Sundays. We meet for one service at 10 o'clock, and just take note of that. Uh, Also, uh, we are in the finishing up the year of collecting for our faith promise giving. We're just a little bit short of that. So uh, we encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, and uh, continue to pray for God to supply that need as we uh, share that with others. And also want to thank everyone who donated poinsettias and uh, those who helped to decorate the the church. is beautiful, and we appreciate that work and that time and energy in doing that. I think we still have a few people who are coming in. So if you have room in your row and you can squeeze to the middle, either way, that would be helpful. And uh, then we can find a spot for a few folks who may need uh, seats as we gather this morning.
Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning is from Micah, and that is chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. A promised ruler from Bethlehem. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together. What hope we hold this starlit night? A king is born in Bethlehem. Our journey along, we see the light that leads to the hallowing manger ground. What fear we felt in the silent age? Four hundred years can he be found? The broken body. Rejoicing the hallowing manger ground. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God incarnate, here to dwell. Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Son of God, here born to bleed, a crown of thorns would pierce his brow, and we beheld this offering, exalted now, the King of Kings, praise God for the Halloween major ground. Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Yeah. 
At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise God, Son, and 
It's been a practice for a number of years that as we pray together that uh, the altar is open for you. And if you would like to come and offer your prayers kneeling at the altar or sitting here in one of the red chairs in front, please join me as we pray together. Father, we come today because you have come to us. We are so grateful for the gift of your son. For what this this whole time of Advent that leads us to Christmas. This whole time is about your love to us and sending your son to be born even in this little town of Bethlehem. That you come in Christ to redeem us and to save us, to set us free. Father, we recognize our needs today as we come in prayer and we bow before you asking your forgiveness for our sins. For the times, even just this week, when we've been more concerned about doing what we want than doing what you want. For the times when we have hurt one another. For the times when we have simply decided selfishly. And we thank you for your forgiveness that comes to us in Christ. Father, as we gather today, we realize that there are needs that we represent. We pray especially that you would comfort those who are grieving today and feel the pain of sorrow and that much more keenly at this holiday time. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with issues of health. And we pray especially for Priscilla Reese Waltz, for Vesta Mullen, for Tim Nichols and Bruce Brenneman, for Bill Roski and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen and Linda Roth and Alton Shea, for Isla Shea and Dick Gould and Edna Howard, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler, and for others who are on our hearts and minds today. And we pray for your healing power in each of them. Father, we pray for people who are away from family during this holiday time. Perhaps they're serving in the military or serving as missionaries or simply live in other places. And we ask for your grace upon them. 
We pray, Father, for our world. We think of people who are grieving and struggling because of the Ebola outbreak. We pray that you would bring an end to this epidemic and that you would bring healing to those who are ill. We pray, Father, for people who face the threat of violence and war and terror in our world. We ask for peace to come. We pray for our brothers and sisters who live in places of the world where they cannot come and gather freely to worship. We pray that you would protect them and that you would give them courage and that their witness for you might cause people who are opposed to you to see you in a different light. Father, we thank you for your grace in this world. We thank you for your grace in us, in this place, in all the places that we represent. We pray for your peace to come on this earth, for joy to come through your son, Jesus Christ, and for the witness of your people in this community and the surrounding communities and the greater world. Father, we ask all of this through Christ who has come into this world as a little baby to be our Savior. And the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The New Testament scripture reading is Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue in singing together, children may be dismissed for Children's Church. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking, how we need to hear from
lot of people have the idea that the church is for good people. That being a part of the church means that uh, you are a good person and you are worthy of being in the church. Now, part of the reason why people have that mindset is because the church has sort of given them that mindset. But the reality is, is when we read the scriptures, we find a completely different idea of the church and the kingdom. What we don't find is God saying, I'm looking for all the good people. We find God saying, I'm looking for real people. And one of the places in the scripture where we see that, maybe in a bit of a subtle way, is the opening section of Matthew's gospel. If you have a Bible with you, or if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, turn to the opening of Matthew's gospel. Now, we didn't read this today because, quite frankly, I didn't want to put anybody through that. Because what we find in the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy of Jesus. It's just names. And you read that list and and you wonder, okay, what exactly does that tell us? See, we have a tendency to think that if you're going to write a book that that people want to read, then the introduction needs to grab people. Because a lot of us will pick up a book and say, I don't know what this is about. You read the first paragraph or two and you make a decision, am I going to continue or not? And so you think about some of the great works of literature and, and some of the, the, the sentences that have been written to begin. You know, probably one of the most famous, Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Or even A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. George Orwell's 1984 begins, It was a cold, bright day in April. And the clocks were striking 13. You think, hmm, what's that about? I think I want to read some more of that. There are more modern books as well, uh, Ann Tyler wrote a book called Back When We Were Grown-Ups, and it begins, Once upon a time, there was a woman who discovered that she had turned into the wrong person. Dodie Smith wrote a book that's called I Capture the Castle that begins, I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. I'm kind of intrigued by that book. I think I might want to read the rest of that. C.S. Lewis begins The Voice of the Dawn Treader with this great sentence. There was a boy called Clarence Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and maybe one of the best titles or best first sentences is Barbara Robinson's book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, that begins, The Herdmans were were the most the terrible kids in the history of the world. 
Well, we read something and we think it ought to grab us. I mean, that's what we were taught in seminary. You know, you begin, you want to grab people's attention. That's how you do that. And so we pick up the New Testament and we think, okay, Matthew's gospel is going to grab our attention. He ought to at least say something like, this book's going to change your life. And we say, wow, we want to read more. And what do we find? We find names. And quite frankly, names don't really mean that much to us. They're just names. And you wonder, what, what is he doing? Why would he do this? Well, we know Matthew writes his gospel to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the things that's important to, to that process is proving his genealogical heritage. That his lineage is what it's supposed to be. That it goes back to David and Judah. And so Matthew lays out this list of names to tell people he's the right one. He's got the right heritage. It's important. But I think it's more than just that. As important as that is, I think Matthew's doing something else here as well. Because I think this is not just a historic genealogy. I think it's a theological genealogy. It's interesting as you look at verse 17... Matthew says, let me just talk to you about the numbers that this represents. He, he divides it into three groups of 14. Now, he has a different genealogy somewhat than Luke. Luke has at least 15 more names than Matthew does, which tells us that Matthew's genealogy is a little bit selective. He doesn't tell us every name that he could have given us. Instead, he's more concerned about some symmetry. And Matthew loves to group things. You see it, the Sermon on the Mount, and when he writes about the, the last days, he loves to group stories and, and ideas into things, into things that are, so that it brings home his point. And he does that here as well. And he connects in with numerology that was very important to people back in first century Palestine. And what we see here is three is representative of God, so that, that people would grasp that right away. And he has these sets of 14, which in number seven, it represents perfection. And so 14 is double perfection. And so for people who are interested in numerology, he's saying you have God tied into this. You also have perfection, double perfection with these lists of 14 names. But you also, if you divide that up, you also have six sevens. And if seven is the perfect number, then Jesus represents the seventh seven which is completion, fulfillment, perfection. And Matthew's tapping into people for whom that is really important to them, to see that. But even beyond that, I am intrigued by the fact that if this is a selective genealogy, that Matthew chooses the names that he chooses. I mean, if we write a genealogy about our own family... We're going to pick the people that we think are going to make us look the best, right? To impress people. And we all have people in our family that we wish weren't in our family in terms of their stories, right? And if you say, well, I don't think my family has any of those people. You just haven't looked far enough. You haven't done enough genealogical background. Because we all have people in our history. And Matthew isn't afraid of those people. You look at this list of names. He's got a list of kings here. You, what you get is the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's got a list of kings here. And, and their stories. And the Jews would know their stories. 
You have people like Rehoboam, who is, who is so greedy and so power-hungry that he is willing to, to divide the kingdom. The kingdom is rent from him, and it splits forever into two kingdoms. And you have someone like Jehoram, who leads the people into idolatry, leads them away from God. And in fact, when he dies, the writer of Chronicles says that he passes away to no one's regret. Wow. That's a bad guy. We all hope no one says that about us. And you have someone like Ahaz who who sets up idols all around Israel, who sacrifices his sons to the fire, who shuts down the temple and locks the doors so the people won't worship God anymore. And and when he is when punishment comes upon him, instead of that turning him toward God, it turns him away from God even more. And then you come to Manasseh. Manasseh is described as someone who does more evil in the eyes of God than the nations that God eliminated so that Israel could take over the land. Manasseh shed so much innocent blood in Jerusalem that it's from end to end. And when... After the exile, when the Israelites are taken into captivity because of their sin, the writer of Kings summarizes that and says, surely this is because of the sin of Manasseh. And yet, here he is in this list of Jesus' people. It's intriguing also that women are listed in this genealogy. In a world in which women have very little, if any, rights, they are considered basically insignificant. They're named. I think it says something as an aside to the fact that there are no second-class people in the kingdom of God. And then then you think of the women who are mentioned. They're not exactly the most stellar people. The circumstances are not exactly the most stellar of circumstances. You have Rahab, you have Tamar who seduces her father-in-law and the children of that union are part of Jesus' lineage. And the, Matthew points that out. And Rahab, who, whose um, occupation is not exactly moral, she's pointed out. And you have Bathsheba and people know that story. He brings that out. He's not afraid of those people. And then you have a lot of good people in here too. You have people like Abraham, who's called a friend of God. Isaac, who is a a man of peace. Boaz, a man of integrity. David, a man after God's own heart. Asa, who says, does good in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, of whom it said God is with him. Josiah, who opens up the temple, finds the book of the law, and reestablishes the the whole worship of Israel. And Zerubbabel, who with Ezra and Nehemiah is at the forefront of of helping to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and reestablish the people after the exile. There are some good people here. But even their lives aren't, aren't just sort of whitewashed. When you look at David, 
I mean, David, you think, would be the one guy who gets a pass, a man after God's own heart. And yet, when he mentions David, he mentions also Bathsheba. Now, actually, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba. He says, David, whose son was born of the woman who was Uriah's wife. Which brings the whole thing back up. David's coveting and adultery and murder and lying to cover it up. And this is God's, one of God's favorite people. And when I read all of this, I am struck by the fact that God's kingdom is not about finding good people. It's about finding real people. The kingdom of God is not about people who are good enough. It's about people who are real and who are open to God. Despite all the flaws and the messiness of our lives. God is more interested in real people who have messy stuff in their lives than he is about people who appear to be good. Because God's more interested in relationship than about trying to find people who are perfect. You know, God could have created us as robots or mannequins. You ever notice how real life mannequins are becoming? I can't tell you how many times I've been in the store and I have almost mistaken a mannequin for a real person. Not too long ago, I was in a store, I couldn't find something, and I came this close to asking a mannequin for help. (laughs) I'm serious, I'm like, nobody saw that, did they? I mean, they look so real, but they're not. You can talk to them all you want, they do not talk back. You don't build a relationship with a mannequin. I mean, they, they may not cause any problems. Their lives don't, you know, they, they, their lives are, are clean and there's no, nothing to worry about with them doing anything wrong. But they're not real. And God wants real. Even if it means messy. God wants relationships. That's why he created us. He created us for relationship, for love. All of creation is firmly established in God who loves. And the minute you start talking about love, you start talking about messiness. Because love's never perfect. In fact, one of the definitions of love is knowing all of the real stuff about someone and still caring for them and being engaged with them anyway. Sometimes love is awesome. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes love brings us great joy. Sometimes it causes us great pain. The one common denominator of love is risk. In fact, I'm convinced if we don't have risk, we don't really have love. Because love is always risking, always taking a chance. Always taking a step beyond what is comfortable and easy. That's what love is. And we see that nowhere more than in God. Who creates in love despite the risk of rejection of the people he created. 
And he sends Christ in love despite how people may reject him. Because God wants relationship with real people. And the point of Christ's coming is not to seek out people whose lives are perfect, but to seek out people who are real. And to come into lives of people who, who live real lives in real places and probably creating a lot of real messes. People who are fallible and sinful and needy and lost. That's why he comes. C.S. Lewis says that somehow we have this confused idea that God comes for people who are redeemable. For comes for people who are worthy. He comes for people who've got it all together. But the reality is he comes for people who are unworthy. People who are, who are good don't need to be redeemed. And the whole point of his coming is that we need it. That's why he's here in the first place. When you read Matthew's story after the genealogy, he just gives a really brief description of the birth of Jesus. It's about Joseph and the angel and Jesus and the birth of Christ. And he only he mentions two names for this child. Emmanuel and Jesus. And Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means God saves. And that's it. God comes among us to save us. And you can't separate those two ideas. They are infinitely woven together. God comes to save us. God saves us by coming among us. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is about. And the reason he comes to save us is because we need saving. Because we are imperfect, fallible, sinful, lost people, real people. And our lives are messy. We might sometimes compare ourselves to other people and our lives don't look quite as messy as some people. And sometimes that makes us feel probably better about ourselves than we should be. But the reality is, We all need Jesus. This whole celebration of Christmas is about Christ coming to us because we need him. And for some of us, we've never opened our hearts to Jesus. We've never been able to say, I need him. But he's looking for us to do just that. And for many of us, it's not a matter of, I've never opened my my heart to Christ, but it's, I've sort of gotten to the place where I feel like I can kind of do this on my own. I'm good enough. I have, I've gained enough. I've gotten further, far enough along that I'm, I'm good. It's at that very moment that we need Jesus that much more. Because we never reach the place where we're good enough. We need Jesus Every moment, all the time. And the coming of Christ is not about people who are perfect and we figured it out. It's about the grace of God in every 
one of our lives every single day, every moment, all the time. You know, I have a lot of friends who, who have told me throughout the years that they have chosen a life verse that they, they connect with. A verse of the scriptures that, that they keep in front of them, which seems to describe their experience with God and what God means to them. And they, they've memorized it and they write it out and they look at it all the time. And they think about it and, they, and they talk about how they have this life verse. I've had very few people tell me that their life verse comes from the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I have no one tell me that their life verse comes from the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. But you know, maybe we should. Maybe, just maybe. This genealogy is one of the most profound Ways in which God communicates his grace to us. That he comes for the good and the bad and the ugly, all of us. Those of us who think our lives are pretty decent and we're doing okay, we need the grace of God. And those of us who worry every day that we are not measuring up, that we're failing, that we're struggling, that we're not what we should be, the grace of God is for us too. And that's why we come to this table today. This table is the ultimate vision of God's grace for us, the ultimate experience here physically of God's grace for us. That God in Christ has offered us grace. And all of us, every single one of us, needs his grace. This table is not about trying to figure out who's in and who's out. This table is about hearing God's call of grace his offer of grace and opening our hearts to receive it. For the first time, for the hundredth time, the thousandth time. The church is not about people who are good. The church is about people who have heard God's offer of grace We've opened our hearts and have been changed by the love and the mercy of Jesus. So as we come to this table this morning, hear God's invitation of grace and come receive it And let God do something new in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. Through Jesus who is born to save us. Please pray with me.
Father, in this season when we celebrate the coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise. You created all things and you called them good. You made us in your own image and even though we rebelled against your love, you didn't desert us. You delivered us from captivity. You made covenant to be our God. You spoke through the prophets who looked for that day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And with the prophets and all who have looked for a better age to come, with your people through all the ages, we gather today to give you thanks and to worship you. Father, you are holy. And we thank you for sending your son in the fullness of time to be the light of the nations. We thank you that in him you scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts and you have mercy on those who fear you from generation to generation. You fill the hungry with good things. And you come in your grace. Father, we thank you for all of your mighty works in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us. We pray that you will send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. That in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ. That we may be one body in him, cleansed by his blood. That we may faithfully serve him in the world and look forward to that day foretold by prophets and apostles. And the one who came in humility and who comes today in word and spirit shall come in final victory. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forevermore. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. We also have uh, trays in the back. And if coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer 
We are happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I also have gluten-free wafers here in cups. And if you would, if that's helpful to you, just let me know as you come forward and I will serve those to you. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God's grace and with the desire in your heart to receive the grace of God in your life, then come receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Days on a journey that led so far, endless nights they travel to follow the star. They did not find a palace, just a humble village home, and searching for a but finding a child, no crown, no
Angels and archangels. 
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.